exciting privilege to be here with you. Um, I always, whenever I have an opportunity to speak, I just feel like it is such an honor um, and to be with you all. As Mo said, I have just come along for the ride, but what a wild and fun and exciting ride it has been. Um, Doug and I have learned so much about different Asian cultures. You've brought us to meals all over the place, and I actually tried sushi for the first time Friday night, and I found out I I, kind of like it. (laughs) You know, I kind of like it. And John, what a great job you have done at selecting these songs, preparing us for God's Word today on the resurrection power. So I really appreciate that. Okay, well today we're going to be looking at some words from Paul the Apostle in the book of Philippians, and we're going to focus on the power of the resurrection. Now, Paul wrote this book while he was um, under house arrest in Rome. So he writes back to the Philippians um, after establishing their church there. Now, Many of you probably know that Paul was born into a Jewish family and he was called Saul for the first probably 20 or 30 years of his life. And he was very zealous for his Jewish faith. He was a Pharisee. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was very, very astute in always following the law. And when this new movement began this movement of people following Jesus Christ, he saw that as a real threat to Judaism. So he became part of the group that went out and hunted down followers of Christ. And you may remember he was there when the first Christian martyr was killed, stoned to death. And he stood by and gave his approval. But On the way to Damascus, he was heading there to arrest Christians, going house to house, men and women, and take them in. And on the way, on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself appears in a vision to Paul. And he is knocked flat on his face. And Jesus speaks to him and he says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, well, Lord, who are you? And he says, well, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. That day, his whole life changed, and it went in a totally different direction. In fact, Jesus sent Paul, he he went by the name Paul, to the Gentiles. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, Jews looked at Gentiles like they were dogs. They called them dogs. And God sends him to the Gentiles to do ministry. Certainly, we had a total transformation of Paul's life. He saw things totally differently because he met Jesus and his power, the power of the resurrection, turned his life totally around. So, Paul had started this church in Philippi, which is a city in Europe, and Another interesting thing, he went there, with, he went there with, with Silas and Luke and Timothy, and when they got there, normally they would go look for a synagogue, and they would begin and preach there. But there wasn't a synagogue, because, of course, we're now in the a Greek world. And so he, he goes to this 
place of prayer that's outside the city gates. And who does he find there but a bunch of women? Now, again, I don't know if you know how Jewish men looked at women back in that day. But I'm sorry, they were not considered to be very important people. They were more like things you owned. So here God sends him to the Gentiles. And then when he gets to Philippi, it's a bunch of women. The Bible in in Acts 16, it tells us they were God-fearing women. They were looking for a relationship with God. So Paul and his associates arrive, and they share the good news about Jesus. Lydia is mentioned. She's here with her purple cloth. She was probably a prominent um, merchant. She responds, and her whole household is baptized. Now, here's another interesting thing. Lydia then invites Paul and his associates to come and stay at their house, at her house. Now, she's a Gentile, remember? Remember the Jews did not have anything to do with Gentiles. And now he's going to go stay at her house. His life is totally changed through Jesus. Now, this church core, we had the group of women It also included the the, um, Philippian jailer, and you may be familiar with that story. So that was the core of this church plant. And I don't know, I think that's just kind of exciting. (laughs) Okay, so let's look at the verses that that Paul um, wrote in Philippians that we're going to focus on. From Philippians 3, 10 to 12, he says, and again, remember, he's writing this from prison, This is where his focus is, even while he's imprisoned. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I better put on my glasses here. It would be a lot easier. Okay. (laughs) Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He wrote this to these dearly beloved sisters and brothers at Philippi. He had fallen in love with a bunch of Gentiles. Now, Paul says that he wants to know Christ and his resurrection power. So I want to remind you that before Jesus came to this earth in a human form, he was in heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he was there at the creation of time and space and matter. There was nothing before it was created by God. Let me read to you from Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him And for him, he is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. Did you know that scientists have discovered something they call dark matter and dark energy, which makes up 95% of the universe? It's holding the universe together. Isn't that interesting? They have no idea what it is. Going on. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to recognize, reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we have Jesus volunteering to come to our earth. We call it the incarnation of Jesus. God made flesh. He dies for us. He sacrifices it all to buy us back from the clutches of the devil. That's important, isn't it? So resurrection power. Christ died on the cross But he rose again, and this is a very familiar theme to you. Many of you have been coming to church all your life. You've heard this story before. But what does it mean? Jesus defies death. All the powers of hell cannot hold him in the grave. What does that mean for us today? Exciting to know that that curse has been broken. Going all the way back to Genesis In Genesis 3.15, it tells us that God put a curse on Satan because when he tempted Eve, she fell. Then Adam, God declares a curse. He says that Satan's head will be crushed. And when Jesus died and rose again, that prophecy was fulfilled. Now, some of you may have heard of a man named Eric Little. Anybody ever heard Chariots of Fire? I don't know if you're old enough or not. But anyway, Eric Little, I mean, I wasn't born even that long ago, but not when, when he had lived. That was 1924 when he ran in the Olympics. I'm not even that old. But there was this great movie that came out in the 70s, and it told us about his life. He was the son of missionaries to China. And they raised him to, to know Jesus and to love him. And Paul, Paul and Eric loved to run. He said, God made me fast, and I will run for his glory. Well, Eric ran in the 1924 Olympics. And the thing that made him remarkable, uh, he was super fast, but when he found out that his 100-meter race was on a Sunday, he refused to run. He believed that that day should be honored, God should be honored, and he would do nothing on a Sunday. And so he he said, I'm not going to run, which stunned the world, those who knew about it. But you know, God is such a great God, and it worked out so that he ran in the 200-meter race, and he won a bronze there, And then he ran in the 400-meter race. He had never trained for the 400-meter. He won. He actually won the gold in the 400-meter. But he became known in this movie for his great faith. And somebody asked him about that. 
and how it how his faith worked out with running and he said faith is like running a race it takes hard concentration of will and energy of soul the power comes from within so eric had this power from within he knew god and his his power came from god not just his physical but also his commitment to christ he went back to China to serve as a missionary, and he served there until he died in 1945. The last two years of his life, he was in, he was in prison. It, during, it was during World War II, and he was imprisoned by the Japanese as he, as he was trying, arrested when he was trying to bring aid to the Chinese. So I thought, interesting, the similarities between Paul, the apostle, and this man, Eric Little, he constantly was pressing on toward the goal. So today, do we need this resurrection power in our lives? I don't know if you're aware, but in this country, they say that more than 10% of the population, adult population, suffers from severe depression. A lot of us feel hopeless at times. We're longing for meaning. We don't know where to turn. We feel full of despair. I teach part-time in a thing called home and hospital, and it's for students who can't go to school. And I was talking to a woman who's one of the teachers, and she told me that she has seven students. They're high school students, and they can't attend school because they are so full of anxiety. And depression, even on medication, they can't. So there's a lot of folks who are needing some resurrection power. Doug and I once heard a psychiatrist tell a story about one of his clients. This woman came in, and she came in several times. And when she walked in, he looked at her face, and there was no expression, no affect whatsoever. And she would sit there, and they would talk about things that didn't mean a whole lot. And finally she came in one day and he said, tell me, when did you die? And the woman looked up and she told the doctor about a specific incident in her life the day she died. Here was a woman who needed Christ's resurrection power. And then how about relationships in your life? Do you need some help there? Some of you know, Doug and I have been married more than 40 years now, but after 10 years, we almost got a divorce. Humanly speaking, there wasn't a lot of hope for our relationship, but we had a lot of people who prayed for us, and individually, we had a relationship with God and were able to allow him to give us his resurrection power, to heal us and get us through that tough time. And I'm so happy that we made it, because here we stand all these years later. God worked in our lives. It doesn't always happen. You've got to have both people willing to do that. But God can restore marriages, even when you think there's no hope, because we were there. And then I wonder about your other relationships. Siblings? Relationships with our kids, co-workers, 
friends? How about parents? How are you doing with your parents? Doug and I have some friends, and their adult daughter will not speak to them. Heartbreaking. And again, I know it takes both parties <laughs> being willing to allow God to work. But he can restore relationships. And it, a lot of the time, it's got to start with us. God can restore with his resurrection power. Well, Paul goes on and, and he says, he, he longs for us to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. When I first read that, I thought, what is that about? He's longing, is he longing to suffer? Is that possible? What is he talking about that? Well, I got to thinking, when you get married, remember you say, for better or for worse? And you know when you're madly in love in those those first few months, I, I don't know if anybody's identifying with this, but you, you go to the altar and you say, for better or for worse? You know, when you're so in love, you're pledging to this, and you hardly know this person that you're marrying, you know, most of the time. Well, I think Paul loved Jesus so much, he was willing to do anything for him. So great was his love. And Paul did suffer tremendously, physically. When he wrote this letter, he had already been beaten up. He had been arrested. He had been mocked, scorned. He'd had crowds rallying around and yelling things about him, get rid of him, arrest him. He'd even been stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra. So he knew what suffering was about. I call that level one suffering. And you know, I, don't, I have never suffered anything like that for Christ. The worst I can think of is when I was a student at Berkeley, and I was sitting in the front row, hearing the professor lecture. It was, it was one of my science classes. And he, I'm, I have a very expressive face. And he was saying some stuff, and that was pretty cool. And then he started talking about um, how there was no God and everything had just happened and, or whatever. And he looked at my face and I saw a look, a mocking look on it. I mean, that's the worst I've suffered, you know? I don't know what it means to be physically abused because of my faith, but Paul did, and he was willing to go there. In fact, he was looking forward to it. So, personal suffering. In Romans, Paul says, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. It's like he's saying, bring it on. Bring it on. And what is fellowship? What does that mean? Does that mean you just hang out and eat together? Well, that's part of fellowship. But I believe Paul's talking about something deeper. We have an intimacy with Christ when we spend time with him. But even more than that, we have something called communitas. And Doug has spoken of this in his series on community. Now, communitas is when a community pours out itself into a cause. 
And you know what, you guys at GRX, you are so great at doing this. And I'm sure I did not, I can't think of everything, but the things I thought of, you pouring yourself out for a cause. There's Kids Zone and Kids Club, Gleanings, um, VBS, City Team Ministries, many, many overseas mission trips. You've got your frontline team that so faithfully serves together every Sunday. You amaze me at the amount of work that is done for setup and, and tear down at the end. Fellowship in the deepest sense means that you're weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And I think many of you here really know what that communitas is all about. The kind of fellowship that is treasured and powered by Jesus. I think there's a second level of suffering with Christ, sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. And I, I'd like to read a passage to you. And again, I think it's one that most of you may be familiar with, but it's very powerful, and it really, really gives us an understanding of what sharing Christ's suffering is about. I call this level two. So in Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40, Jesus himself is is talking here, and he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepare for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I first heard this passage, I think, when Mother Teresa referred to it. You remember Mother Teresa who ministered in India to the poorest of the poor. And I remember when I heard this, she was saying that she was ministering to Jesus with every person that she helped. And I remember thinking, but wait a minute, these people are not followers of Christ. We're talking about Hindus and Muslims and sheiks. They're not followers of Christ, and yet Jesus does not make a distinction here. He says that we are to come alongside all those who suffer without judgment on where they are personally in their faith. I found that rather shocking. Do you? That every time you reach out, I mean, is he talking about, he says, strangers, welcoming strangers? What if they're illegal? He doesn't say anything about it. And people that are Hungry and thirsty? I mean, is it their own fault they're hungry and thirsty? 
There's no place for judgment here, is there? Well, many of you are already doing this. And again, we spoke about the communitas that you experience in your ministries. You are already coming along the poor and the needy and the hungry. And I, I love these pictures here. And again, there's so many I couldn't show, didn't have room. But you're already doing mission trips. You're feeding the homeless, the gleaning, some I've already mentioned. So many of you here, it seems to just come naturally to you. You serve the poor, the needy, whoever needs you, you're there. I have to confess to you this morning, it is not a natural gift for me. And that brings me to a story that began about three years ago. I was reading the paper one day, and I was reading about this father and son who tied up this other kid, 18-year-old kid. The father and son were on a drug binge. They tied up this boy, and they beat him to death over a series of hours. Went on all day long until he finally died. As I read this article, I read in horror as I realized the son had been in my class in fourth and fifth grade. I knew this boy. I knew him well. I had taught him for two years. And I was absolutely horrified, a cold-blooded murderer. And God said to me, Nancy, you need to go see Timothy in jail, Martinez County Jail, right, you know, just a few miles away. I said, no, Lord, there is no way I could do that. He's a cold-blooded murderer. He knows where I live because he came to my house when he was in fifth grade for lunch one day, had the whole class over. I can't possibly do that. I said, no. (laughs) Well, a few months went by. It was Christmas. I got out the box of ornaments, and I'm hanging them on the tree. Lo and behold, I find this beautiful hand-painted sand dollar, and on the back it says, to Mrs. Stevens, love, Timothy. The Lord said to me, Nancy, you need to go visit Timothy at the Martinez County Jail. I said, oh, Lord, no, I can't do that. Put that ornament on the tree. Life went on. A few months went by. I realized one day as I looked up at this little stuffed animal on top of the bookcase, it's an angel bear, little bear with wings. I I thought, wow, Timothy gave that to me one year because I was his teacher. And the Lord said to me, Nancy, you need to go visit Timothy at the Martinez County Jail. I said, Lord, no, I just can't. It's too gruesome, the thought of it. And he doesn't want to see me anyway. More months went by. Christmas came again. Just before Christmas, I read in the paper that he had been sentenced to life in prison. His own father testified against him. Wow. Again, the Lord said to me, 
you haven't gone visit, gone to visit Timothy yet, have you? I said, no, no, I can't do it. Christmas came, I got out the ornaments again. There his ornament was again. And a dimmer voice said, Nancy, you need to go visit Timothy. And I said, can't do it, Lord. Well, it wasn't but a few days after that. I was cleaning out a closet, and I pulled out a folder. I opened it up. Can you imagine what I found in this folder? A picture of Timothy and his autobiography, plus a letter from, that his mother had written all about the family. I've had almost a thousand students in my teaching career. I have one autobiography by a student that I kept. As I looked over that, I, and I looked at the letter from his mother where she explained both the parents were on drugs when he was born. She had become a Christian when Timothy was about four. And she wrote in this, I know I have to keep him away from his father. But apparently she was unable to do that. So again, the Lord said to me, Nancy, you haven't gone to visit Timothy yet. You need to do it. And finally, I said, yes. I took a deep breath, and I knew God needed to work on my heart. But I was almost there. So it was about three weeks later. I'm driving in Martinez. I didn't go there deliberately, but I had to go somewhere else. I drove right by the county jail. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, I went in. I went up to the clerk. I said, I'm looking for Timothy. She said, oh, yeah. And she looked up and she said, we moved him to San Quentin 10 days ago. I went, phew. But, you know, it's interesting because you may have heard Doug mention that I was going to San Quentin to share in a chapel service with a, a church over on, in the East Bay. And I said, okay, Lord, I know I still need to see Timothy. And I found out I couldn't see him that day, but I began to write to him. And he's written back several letters. He was so excited that I wanted to come see him. And so I finally got approval for that, and I plan to do that hopefully in June. But I was able to go to San Quentin not able to see him at the time, and share with the prisoners what God had taught me about coming alongside those who are suffering, about visiting prisoners in jail. And what made the difference for me was when Jesus reminded me that he died for Timothy's sins. But you know what? He had to die for mine, too. And in reality, when we look at the holiness of God, none of us, none of us can make it without receiving that gift of Christ's death and resurrection, the resurrection power. So how are we going to respond to this today? Will we press on as Paul urges us to do? Will we allow God to replace the despair in our lives with hope? 
Will we allow him to replace the fear with faith? That's something that I have had to deal with pretty much my whole life. I was born in a family that taught you to fear and worry first. And then consider everything and maybe you could move on with faith. So that's something I deal with a lot. Again, allowing Christ's resurrection power to transform. And then what about replacing our cynicism with potential? You see, I was very cynical about reaching out to Timothy. I mean, what can God do with this kid who's murdered somebody? And by the way, that was his best friend from childhood. And yet God says, my power is great enough to transform even Timothy's life. Pray to see the potential in this man's life. There are people in prison who need to be ministered to. Perhaps God will use Timothy. So I needed to let go of my judgments. You may be wondering to yourselves, how do, we, how do we access this resurrection power? Many of you in this room have probably grown up in the church, and you've heard this before. How do we access it? Well, I want you to consider the fire hydrant. And this image may be, I hope it kind of makes you catch your breath. Have you ever seen a, a real fire hydrant with the water spewing out, blasting out? I think that actually shows us the power of God in a, in a little tiny way. But it's a little much for us, isn't it? We can't imagine that much power in our lives. So we're actually going to look at the, fa- the, um, the faucet, the water faucet. Yeah. And you'll notice there's one drop coming out. As I look at that, I think for much of my life, I've known about God and his love for me for years and years and years. But for most of my life, this is about all I let in. One drop. One drop at a time. Because the power of that water flooding through, I mean, that's scary. I have to give up control. God respects us so much, he gives us total control over our lives, doesn't he? So... I urge you to open up that valve wide and let God's resurrection power flood into your life. Consider this morning, are there things you need transformation in, areas you need to turn over to the Lord? Are there relationships you need to let go Just let go and let God come in and transform with his power. And maybe God's calling you to press on and go forward in a certain area like he did for me with Timothy. Let's just pray for a moment and think about what God, how how is God speaking to you? Maybe you just need to ask him to fill you with himself. Give him your life. Let him turn you totally around and follow him. So, Lord, we thank you this morning for this message from Paul, the one whose life was totally turned around and headed in a new direction when he met you, Jesus.
and when he surrendered his whole life to you. Father, you know our hearts. You know what's going on in our lives, in our relationships. You know what you've called us to do and to be. And Lord Jesus, help us to let go. Help us to turn that valve open and trust you and not be fearful of letting you take control of our lives. Even right now, Lord, come in and change us. Fill us with yourself, with your power. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.